Welcome to the Amateur Church Podcast, where we pursue excellence in ministry with the right motivation for the sake of love. I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm so thankful that you are on this disciple's journey with me. The Amateur Church is a call for anyone who is tired of church being a programmed organization. You see, I want to be an amateur, at least in the sense that how I lead, preach, and serve is based on love. I want my love for Jesus Christ and love for others to be my motivation. This is not a push to become lazy or unskilled in our abilities. In fact, I believe that when we as churches get back to being amateurs, we will actually see a greater excellence in our lifestyles. So thank you for joining me in rejecting a professional Christianity that seeks our own glory and rediscovering a passion for Christ and His church. And so as we've been going throughout this year reading through the Bible together, we call it the Disciples' Journey. We are now in Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Yes, this week we will be reading two of the books that Solomon that are attributed to Solomon that Solomon wrote for our encouragement, comfort, edification, but also conviction. And today, uh, as we begin our week, we look at theology. What can we learn? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about ourselves? And what can we learn about our relationship to God through Jesus Christ? And so, going to kind of break these up since we're looking at two books, uh, two small books this week. I want to walk through Ecclesiastes and then Song of Songs with you, and then kind of pull in together uh, a final uh, understanding of both. So when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters, uh, we see that the authorship, it's written by uh, the preacher or the teacher, according to chapter 1, verse 1. And he calls himself, he he, uh, describes himself, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we know this is Solomon, who's uh, the Koheleth, uh, the teacher, the preacher. And he cries out, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity simply means emptiness. And so he he really brings the theme of the entire book with the question of, is life really worth living? And if you misunderstand the purpose of this book, it can be a very de- depressing text. You can come away with it thinking things that are not the intention of God through this text. In fact, a few years ago when I preached through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, in in the summer, uh, I believe it was 2019, we walked through uh, different elements of, of how people take Ecclesiastes, dealing with their own depression, and actually saw that it says the exact opposite. It's not about how life is meaningless. It, the truth is life without God is meaningless. Uh, it shows that God is the ultimate meaning in all things and that God's ways are not always understood. We have a tendency to try to figure God out or figure situations out. And, and Ecclesiastes is a very humbling book, uh, not heartbreaking, but humbling book uh, in which our eyes need to constantly be focused on God. What do we learn from this? Well, we see that he says, there is vanity in human wisdom, work, even relationships and experiences based on uh, chapters 1 through 4 if they are left unchecked. For instance, when you go to chapter 2, verse 3, he begins what, we, what, what I call the great experiment. 
and he experiments or tries to tries to find meaning in different aspects. In fact, five different uh, possibilities he was trying to go after to, to see what could give him meaning or fulfillment in his life. Look at chapter three, 2, verse 3. Uh, actually, let's begin in verse 1. He says, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what was good, what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. So he began with pleasures and parties, and they left him unfulfilled. He had no fulfillment from these things, and you and I, uh, as we look at our things, the theology of, of, of God and man's relationship to God, if we are simply hedonist, just uh, trying to get all the pleasure we can without God, it will leave us empty. Look at verse 4. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself, made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted them uh, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So he tried projects, work. They left him unfulfilled. Look at uh, verse 7 says, I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines, people left him unfulfilled. Even relationships uh, without God as the center could not satisfy him. Uh, look at verse 8 again. He says, uh, I collected my, for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Possessions left him unfulfilled. And then finally, verse 9, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me, or my wisdom gave me a great reputation. His popularity still left Left him unfulfilled. Now, as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes to, uh, this week, uh, specifically today's passages, we're going to understand that he seems very hopeless. But un but remember, anchor that to the truth: parties and pleasure, projects, people, possessions, popularity, all of those elements, apart from the centrality of God and His gospel, will leave you unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And this really, I believe, is a word to uh, to us, the church, to the world, that all of the things that we try to amass, all of the things that we try to build our kingdoms with are hopeless and empty. And so how do we study and apply Ecclesiastes? Well, towards the end of, of, uh, of Wednesday's reading, you're going to read chapter 12, uh, verses 13 and 14. I want you to listen to this. He says, The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Four ways you can study and apply Ecclesiastes. And these four will also be the same in uh, in Song of Songs. So we'll hold this together. Uh, but let me go ahead and share these four things and I'll come back to them. Number one, fear God. That our lives need to be uh, in 
in in the focus of who God is and what he is doing. And yes, there is a holy awe and a holy trembling before God because he is great and mighty, worthy to be praised. Our theology will affect our practice and belief, uh, our practice and activity. And and your belief about God affects what you do. So realize, if you don't fear God with your actions, it's because you don't fear God with your belief. You don't believe in the God we that, that, that really exists. Fear God. Obey God. That if you fear Him, the Word of God says, keep His commandments. Obey Him uh, above all others. That Solomon points out that there are many people who obey their friends, their own lust, their own appetites, their own work ethic, fear and obey God above all others. Third, invest your life in what really matters. You're going to read this week uh, how there's wisdom in uh, living our lives to the fullest in what matters, prioritizing what matters. Because when we prioritize ourselves, it's vanity, it's empty, it's not worth living. But a life really worth living is that in which we've invested in what God has for us. And fourth, remember this, enjoy the blessings of God today. And that's found in holiness, right living, right relationships, and making disciples. Enjoy the blessings. Uh, Material possessions are not bad. It's when those possessions possess you. Uh, Money is not bad. It's when that owns you. And so you must enjoy the blessings of God today, making sure that you do that after or in priority of fearing God, obeying Him, and investing your life in what really matters. Now, I want to move now to Song of Songs because it's from the same author. Uh, We see the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, this means it could be written by Solomon, which I believe is is the correct understanding. Um, Some have said it's about Solomon, and they've tried to make him the hero. And and, uh, I don't have time all throughout this week to go through that. I preached on Song of Songs a few years ago and really preached a different interpretation than than what most people cling to. Uh, and, and I'll get into that a little bit. Uh, I have a sort of a different uh, perspective of the book. And I want you, as you read through the entire eight chapters this week, you study for yourself uh, as, as a disciple. But the title is known as the Song of Songs. It's actually not Song of Solomon. We attribute it to Solomon, so we say it's the Song of Solomon. But notice it starts out, the Song of Songs, which means it is the best song. It's sort of like we say, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. That means Christ is the best Lord, the best King, the, the greatest of all. Well, that's what the Song of Songs means. It is the finest song. And yes, I think it is written by Solomon. And I'll tell you uh, towards the end why I think that makes sense. Uh, and there are many ways you can read this. Uh, some have read it allegorically. Uh, they see that everything is symbolic, that the man... Uh, who many attribute to Solomon, the husband uh, or, or, the, or the groom, uh, they say represents God or Christ. If it's God, then it represents Israel. If it's Christ, then uh, if, if it, the man represents God, then the woman, uh, the Shulamite, represents Israel. If uh, the man represents Christ, uh, then the woman represents the church. Many have taken an allegorical approach to that. And I think I think you can see similarities between these. I think you can see a message in there. 
But if you try to make it strictly allegorical, you find some some major problems. And we'll discuss that as we walk through it this week. Some have said this is literally a story that exalts the love between a man and a woman within marriage or wedding celebration. And, and I find a lot of uh, truth to 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 that, or, or you know, my opinion is that it would be a a good literal story that Solomon probably saw this story play out before him. Again, I'll explain it in a second. And then others have said, you know, this is just love songs. There's there's no historical approach. There's no uh, actual literal story going on. Uh, it's just a collection of songs of love. Uh, and, and uh, that many people would just put this together and just sing them. Sort of if you took the camp, top 10 countdown or top 40 charts or whatever and put them all in one collection and they were just constant love songs uh, that you've got a chorus of people assisting uh, a, 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 a singer or a duet of, of singers. And however you land on that, you know, you take that and just make sure you read scripture within scripture in light of scripture. And if that's the case, then here's what I want to theologically present to you as the interpretation that I hold to. That the Song of Songs, chapters 1 through 8, is a literal story that can be, that can symbolize our relationship with Christ, of course, but a literal story about the Shulamite woman. We see uh, that she is the one who begins chapter 1, who is rejecting the advances of King Solomon. He is not the hero. He's actually the villain of the story, if you have a villain, in expectation of her beloved, the shepherd. And so while many have read Song of Songs as a two-person, along with some singers in the background, uh, narrative uh, between a bridegroom and a bride, I read it, uh, and, and th there is a particular view of this. It's it's the three-person story. Uh, I read it as a, as a story with three main characters, the Shulamite woman, King Solomon, who is trying to woo her, and her beloved, the shepherd that she is waiting on. And I want you to kind of think through this, because in verse 4 of chapter 1, she says, draw me after you and let us run together. She's calling out to a to her beloved, who I believe she is a married woman, and she is waiting on her beloved to return to her because she has been taken into, listen, the king has brought me into his chambers. She's been brought into the chambers of the king, I believe, as a concubine. Now, again, you've got to really read through this story and, and, uh, and do some work here. But this is the, the interpretation that makes the most sense to me. She rejects King Solomon in expectation of her beloved, the shepherd. And the reason I see this is because um, when, you, uh, when you read it, not according to subtitles or headings you may have in your Bible, get away from that, but when you read through this, you see the constant allure and seduction of the king. For instance, when we say, well, King Solomon... Uh, is represents Jesus or God, and this is a love story about him and the church or him and uh, Israel. Well, there's a problem with that, and there there's several issues. For for instance, uh, when you look at um, chapter uh, uh, chapter three, and it talks about. Um, what is the verse six? What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Verse seven says, "Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 
60 mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wielders of the sword, expert in war. But notice this in verse 9. King Solomon has made for himself a, a chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. This means Solomon has a couch, a bed, that he a traveling bed in which many daughters of Jerusalem, many women or concubines have fitted to the bed. He has had sexual escapades or experiences with the many women. And that's just one issue. Uh, we see Solomon, and we know that Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And so if you talk about this being the finest song of love between one man and one woman, and you try to make practical application even in marriage, it doesn't work. It falls apart. And if you try to make Solomon Jesus and that he has many different brides, it brings down the centrality and the truth, uh, the purity of the gospel. In fact, another way of looking at this, look, uh, in uh, chapter 6, many have said, well, Solomon wrote this as a young man before he had all the queens and wives. He just had one. Well, that would work except for the Bible. Look at chapter 6, verse uh, verse 8. He's describing uh, this woman and in verse 8, it says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. So what's going on here is there are, he's not a one-woman man. He's going after so many women in this and trying to seduce and woo this one woman, and she is rejecting him. Now, think about it. The Shulamite woman rejects the advances of King Solomon in expectation of her beloved, the shepherd. If this is the case, then Solomon is watching as he, a king, has a woman in his sights and he's going after her and she says no. She says, there is someone that I am already married to that I love and I'm waiting for to get me. In fact, at many times she will uh, have a dream and she'll leave uh, the, the court and try to go out, and she's actually wounded by the guardsmen, Solomon's own men. They beat her. Uh, she's persecuted for uh, for uh, not bowing to him or not giving in to him. And, and is this not the great picture of the church, that we are a bride waiting on our groom in the midst of a world led by a certain god of this age and king or prince of the power of the air who is wooing us, seducing us, trying to hurt us. And when he can't have us, he persecutes us. And we are called to stand firm in waiting for Christ and, and watching for him. This is the gospel that when you think about, again, that statement, the Shulamite woman rejects the advances of King Solomon in expectation of her beloved, the shepherd. Take it, put, put these words in there. The church rejects the advances of the world in expectation of her beloved, Jesus Christ. This is how I read Song of Songs. And, and if you want to go and, and watch or listen to my sermons based on this, you can look at it on uh, Church. Uh, our website, um, the, I've got several weeks of teaching uh, on Song of Songs. It's It can be very heavy, but I want you to, to see theologically why this interpretation, I think, is the best. But the truth is, the entire Bible is a love song. That from Genesis to Revelation, however you interpret Song of Songs, the entire Bible is a love song. Uh, 
uh, and we are waiting on our Savior. And so my prayer is that the Song of Songs would teach us to love Christ even more. So how do we apply it? The same way we apply and learn Ecclesiastes. We fear God above all things. We, we have a love for Christ. And if that's the case, we obey him. We uh, say no to the seductions and allures uh, of the world. We invest our life in what really matters. What I mean by that is we, we put aside the things that are going to take away uh, our affections for God. And we invest, many of us, maybe like uh the, the, the Shulamite woman taken into the chambers of the king can be seduced by his, uh, his possessions and his palaces. But she even cries out, um, the, the, the couch of Solomon is, 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 is you know, luxuriant, but our house is more lovely, um, that, that we are waiting on a future home, heaven. And so we reject our, our seductions by this world. And then we do enjoy the blessings of God today. God did not put us here um, to uh, sit, soak, to sour. God did not put us here to be miserable. God put us here to have life and life more abundant as we follow him. But to do so, you fear him, you obey him, you invest your life in him and his plan, and then you're able to enjoy with the joy of the Lord, not the pleasures of this world, but the joy of the Lord. And when you do, it makes life worth living. No matter what Satan throws at you, you can live your life with joy. As we close out today, my prayer point for this week, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would examine your life. God, teach us to examine our lives and see that our lives are really worth living because we're living them for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. Stakes in the ground. <laughs>